and welcome to Cinema Spectator, a show where an expert and a casual movie fan watch movies in the cinematic canon. Today's film, we watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, directed by Sergio Leone, starring Clint Eastwood, Lee Van Cleef, and Eli Wallach. My name is Cameron Tuttle, and I'm joined with Isaac Ransom. Isaac, how are you doing? Hi, hi, hi. I'm very well. That's all I'm going <laughs> to, I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, I'm good. How about you, Cameron? Oh, I mean, besides the fact that it's like stupidly hot here in San Jose, I'm extra sweaty on on the camera right now but i just am allergic to heat i think i'm mm. supposed to be with my nordic ancestors or something mm. in very cold weather but how about you how's life dude it's been a f- insane week this week i don't i actually if i told you the story it would probably take the length of this episode so i'm gonna skip it but uh um yeah it it was uh it was wild it was wild this week so um you know, uh, I had car problems in Yosemite. Oh, come on. To... You got to get into this a little bit, right? You can't just tease the audience. Come on. I guess so. I mean, yeah, it it was. Um, so I right now I'm doing wedding videos um, primarily. Uh, and I had a wedding in Yosemite. My car broke down on the way to Yosemite. Um, and it was a whole trek to, to get back to... <laughs> of civilization i i literally broke down in the middle of it just grass like it's a it's a highway and just grass around me there's no town no nothing like it was in the middle of nowhere so um i had to get it i had to get my car towed to like the nearest city which was merced and uh then i had to which merced not even really a city but whatever um they have a Hyundai dealership and they, they told me the problem. And then we actually drove the car back. We, we put it on an auto transport from U-Haul and drove the car back to San Jose. And I, I fixed it, um, with my own two hands. Uh, Whoa. so it was a, a real mess. It took me like four days to, uh, to get it all sorted. And then I, the next day I had another shoot in like, <laughs> in the North Bay. So wow, yeah. And then this um, yesterday, I had another shoot. So it's been honestly just like a whirlwind. I I literally didn't wake up until eleven today because I was so uh, sleep deprived and exhausted. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just need those uh, periods to kind of relax and and just you know recover from the busy. Yeah, I don't know what it was. This last week for me too was pretty. Um, just hectic, like a lot of drama, family drama stuff. Hmm. Um, and it just kept getting crazier. Like, uh, I, we, uh, Jules and I, my girlfriend, we received some news that like some of our close friends, um, that we see a lot, they were like married, but then like, I guess they're just broken up and it was like came out of left field. So there's like a little bit of like strange morning with that and then there's all this chaos at her house and it's hot and then there's it's just it's been it's been kind of wild um and that we had to postpone this episode so you'll be hearing this uh late monday night we're recording it um so thank you guys for the flexibility of course i i i felt bad for having to push it off but there's just been so much going on that um i think it was important that we just took a second we have a lot of stuff going on we know you got a lot going on so hopefully you'll enjoy this either uh, late tonight or on commute Tuesday. Um, but yeah, we appreciate, we appreciate the patience. Again, this is cinema spectator. You can support us at patreon.com slash ECFS productions, get a exclusive commentary track each month. 
uh, for just a dollar and have your questions read on the show, a bunch of other benefits as well. You can check that out if you're interested. If you don't have a few dollars, it's all good. You can just give us a rating on iTunes or tell friends and family. That really helps the show grow. So uh, if you want to tell people you enjoy the show or you think somebody's into exploring older movies, Cameron has really put together a great program for us. Right now we're going through Western Month, and so that's why we're reviewing The Good, The Bad, The Ugly. We did a bunch of John Wayne films earlier. Cameron, do you want to give us a little bit of context about The Good, Bad, The Ugly? Yeah, well, I do actually want to talk about the other movies that I watched this week, which is kind of hilarious. Even as busy as I was, um, I made sure to watch uh, the other two movies in the Dollars Trilogy this week. That's great. Um, Which I think was... Um, important for me to revisit, not just to get myself in the mindset. In fact, I actually wanted to to um, I I encouraged Isaac this week to get just a little bit of context uh, for this movie. I told him to listen to the three theme songs of these movies, um, which I think are really important, and um, watch the final ten minutes of um, for of uh, a fistful of dollars. Um, and the reason why I did that was because I think um, both of those things really cement elements of what a spaghetti western is. Um, you know what this genre sort of pioneered, what it what it accomplished, and how it kind of changed the form. And so I did want to give Isaac just just a little tiny bit of context there. And I would have loved to have seen all three of these movies with Isaac because um, I think they're all important, unique, and excellent in their own right. Um, but I decided uh, we should watch The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, it is the most well-renowned and the most um, uh, the most famous, for sure, and the most cu- culturally important. So um, I think it is important. It would be hard to overlook, even if I may like or think other of the two, you know, other other of the three are are you know a better introduction into the into the world. But um, I do think this is uh, I, this is the right call to watch the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, but I did want to say outright, um, I yeah, I watched all three of them, and man, they are just that. There's something about them that that really um, gets to me in in sort of a. I don't know, like an animal brain kind of sense. Um, mm. There's something about it that that like hooks on hooks into me personally, and is like it doesn't doesn't let go. So, um, yeah. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit about Sergio Leone um, and about the spaghetti western genre um, as sort of an introduction into this movie. So, um, spaghetti westerns, as we talked about a little bit last week. They were really um, sort of the the next stage of the Western after the John Ford era. Um, we saw sort of the rise and fall of Westerns in the traditional American sense. Um, and partly it, it was it had to do with a couple things, right? One was uh, the the disillusionment of the West from the perspective of looking back on things like World War II, looking back on this this time period as maybe not as glamorous or glorious as as maybe it was once thought. Um, and it also had to do with the 
sort of waning period of Hollywood um, and the rise of international films in the in sort of the American scene. And and part of that reason was because of changes to the Hollywood structure, changes to the system from the government, um, and also the fact that there was really a lack of interest in the late 50s and early 60s in sort of big budget Hollywood movies. We started to see lots of biblical epics because those were kind of the movies that uh, that got th- people into theaters. And um, I think obviously the rise of television in the 50s was a big factor in, in sort of the waning uh, influence of Hollywood. But also suburbanization was a big was a big deal at this time. So people were spreading out from cities, moving into the suburbs where maybe the closest theater was 30 minutes, an hour, two hours away. So there was a there was a big change that was happening to the Hollywood system, um, disrupted by multiple factors. I think a lot of people actually, I'll just talk briefly about this, but a lot of people will pin it down to TV just specifically. It's mm. not that. Um, it is, TV was a big factor, but there was a lot of things happening in the 50s that really changed Hollywood radically. So um, I do just want to point that out because, you know, most people sort of pin it solely on TV, but it's not really it's it's kind of multi-factor. Um, but, yeah, as as sort of people were moving out, spreading out of the cities, um, it was really the big, important huge movies that Hollywood were able to market as events, uh, things that were, you know, in color, things that were widescreen, kind of like The Searchers, I think, is a movie that that really embodies this. But, um, you know, other things were like um, the uh, the Ten Commandments uh, in, I think, 1954, 1955. Um, so big Bibli- Ben-Hur um, in 56. So giant huge widescreen, you know, big budget movies um, that came out of this time period. And in the 60s, what you started to see is less and less of these. And actually, it's funny that I mentioned Ben-Hur because um, Sergio Leone got his start directing, uh, assistant directing on these movies. He was actually an assistant director on Um, Ben-Hur. And he worked very closely with sort of the, um, a studio in Rome who did these big budget epics um and so from there he you know in 1964 he made uh, a fistful of dollars which was not his directorial debut but it was his first take on the western it was a very low budget movie um really did pretty poorly actually uh in well, it it did really well in italy and then it was it was imported into america a couple of years later um where it got really mixed criticism uh from from the critics um obviously looking back it's it's beloved and very well uh well known and and sort of well-cited but um you know as his first foray it was a really low budget movie you can kind of tell um, and then he did for a few dollars more the next year and uh, The Good, The Bad and The Ugly uh, the year after that. So he actually made these three movies in a span of of three years. They weren't actually supposed to be a, uh, related at all, um, which is kind of funny because obviously I think The Good, The Bad and The Ugly probably was the one that uh, you could say like maybe was related the most uh, because – you know, uh, I guess 
not really a spoiler, but by the end, he he acquires his signature poncho and his signature hat. But, um, you know, really, it's it's very loosely they're very loosely tied in. And I would say more than anything, the world is what's related, not necessarily the characters. Maybe Clint Eastwood is kind of the same character throughout, but I kind of don't really think so. I think probably Leone's intention was that the he he was painting with or he was playing with like a toolbox of of characters and putting them in different scenarios. So the world is what's important, not necessarily the the strict storylines. And and I think one way you can look at these movies is as legends of the West, um, legends of these of these characters. And I think that kind of makes sense, uh, you know, in in a whole in the whole context of things. Um, I guess that's my primer a little bit. Um, did I neglect anything? Is there anything you you want clarification of? Because I think we should go into sort of, uh, you know, the, the details of the movie, I guess. Sure. I mean, we can get into the plot here in just a moment. I guess I have a couple of questions about what a spaghetti Western is because, <laughs> you know, I think most people understand that there's the context of America becoming disinterested in the Western. So they move them for like budget purposes, but like, how did that genre evolve in Italy? Right? Like, how did it like, like, is this the best version of spaghetti Westerns or was there like an explosion of more spaghetti Westerns after these films or before or during like what? Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's a great question that, the spaghetti Western is really defined by a Western that's made in Italy. So, um, you know, in in a lot of senses, the spaghetti Western has kind of a very loose definition. Um, it could be set. Usually it's set in America, obviously, but, um, you know, with Italian actors and whatever else. Um, and I would say A Fistful of Dollars is the movie that actually really pioneered those movies um it's a movie that uh kicked off a bunch of spin-offs i think django is an uh is an example of it there's a couple different ones but really the the spaghetti westerns that people go back to are and and think about pretty often are the dollars trilogy so fistful of dollars a few dollars more the good the bad and the ugly um uh once Upon a Time in the West, which is another Sergio Leone movie. And, um, you know, a couple more that were Leone-led, like Duck, You Sucker. But I think um, I think those four are kind of the key um, spaghetti westerns in the canon. Uh, there, are, there are more examples, but usually lower budget, usually a lot less... Um, uh, looked back upon fondly, but the the influence of spaghetti western is, I think, what most people talk about and are mentioning when when it comes to um, what a spaghetti western is. And you know, these four movies that Leone made were really what people go back to as sort of the evolution of the of the western genre, much darker, much more. Um, violent, much more morally ambiguous, as in not really any good guys, not really any 
uh, everybody's kind of a bad guy. Uh, the good guy is the person who you identify the most, uh, which, you know, the hero is only the hero because he's not as bad as the other guys, basically. Right, um, right. And so so that's kind of the, the European cynicism from, uh, you know, from Leone and from his background, um, you know, as as sort of a European filmmaker, that was what the the influence of Spaghetti Westerns ended up becoming. Uh, but yeah, I think those four movies are pretty much what people are talking about when they talk about the Spaghetti Westerns. Yeah, you can tell pretty instantly when you start watching the film that it's not a normal Western movie, at least compared to the ones that we've watched already. And it was kind of off-putting at first, but I like the word you used, Cameron. You said it's almost like a perspective of legend. You know, there's some sort of like um, just persona around these characters that are on screen that just it, it, it feels very much like someone is storytelling in an elaborate and kind of crazy way and the filmmaking comes alongside that as well i think that i understand the genre better now that i've seen one because i have the, like the american westerns to compare it to and i can understand i think maybe where some of the um love for spaghetti westerns comes about it feels more wild and and experimental in a way um, and and like genuinely exciting, but there's also like a swagger that doesn't care what you think of it as well. Like there's like this energy around it because I was texting when I was watching. I was like, I've never seen anything like this where they spend so much time showing off how cool the movie is, you know, or at least what yeah. the filmmakers think is cool. And in a way, it's like fake it till you make it. It ends up being like really engaging and very, very cool, right? As they continue to just, you know, zoom in on people's eyes and there's so many like wild cuts between the hands about to touch the guns and all that stuff. It's like it, it, it brings a new life that the Western genre I haven't seen like has. As a matter of fact, I don't, I don't mean like, this is a difficult thought, but I wanted to share it because it was how I felt. Um, I'm going to bring up a video game maker uh, named Hideo Kojima. And most people that know Kojima's games, um, know that he has like an obsession with like American military, like action media, whatever that is. Right. But he creates these experiences that are like his, right. Very much his wild creative style in the context of this like hyper American, like area, this genre, like the military, like, I mean, he calls his games like Metal Gear Solid and then it's like tactical espionage, like, okay, you know? So he's like, he's aiming for that style, but then it's like undeniably Japanese too at the same yeah. time, right? Yeah. This movie has that kind of conflicting um, culture between two separate like styles, you know? And I was like, this reminds me of sort of Kojima's games where there's like this creative foreign feeling to the movie um, but it works somehow, right? Like it's almost like each individual character, the good, the bad, and the ugly are like these untouchable. Like I was thinking, I'm like, they're kind of like those super powerful anime characters to a certain <laughs> degree. Like I was, I was like, wow, this is really different, you know, like I, um, and yet there's still complexity. It's just, it's approaching it in a, in a way that most American film 
does not, right? And I actually found it to be like, I mean, it's flexing its guns and it it totally like finishes the landing in, in my perspective. Um, Cameron, I know I'm kind of like giving a little bit of my thoughts as I'm also trying to interpret like what the Spaghetti Western is, but should we give like some context of the plot and how it follows or, or where it goes with it? Yeah, I mean, I will say that if you kind of just like uh, recount the plot of this movie, it's not really anything special right. necessarily. Um, and I, I, I think it would almost behoove us to say like, um, before anything, before we just talk about anything, like just go watch it. Like it's, I, it's not. I I think first of all, you know, one thing we should point out is that it's three hours long, so it's a pretty long movie. It's yeah. it's considered an epic. Um, it's one of these movies that you really have to kind of spend a lot of time, you know, diving into. Um, but I would say you're not gonna understand what we're talking about until you've you've seen it. Um, and and frankly, this is a movie that I think is on not just mine, but everybody's need to watch list. Basically, hundred percent. Yeah, it, it, it's it's a movie that I think people um, people know visually, know the the theme song to. They know, understand the you know the Mexican standoff. Like it's a it's a movie that has defined culture for the past um, you know uh, sixty plus years. And uh, it's one that that you really don't understand until you've seen it, because there are so many parodies, so many ways that that it's been uh, sort of uh, made, you know, not made fun of, but like integrated into the culture, I guess, yes. um, in a way that is totally uh, <laughs> it, it's almost like you don't believe it until you see it. You yeah, know let I mean? me like, let me give you a perfect example, honestly, because I was just like jaw dropped Um the score in this film is incredible. Uh, yes, it's it's yes. just amazing. I don't it, like. I literally listened to it after watching the film, which I don't do with a lot of movies. But I like listen through a majority of the score. Now, there's a track called uh, "Ecstasy of Gold," which most people know without even knowing that they know mm-hmm. it. Right. Yep. It's. And, I would say first of all, before you go into this, I would say it's the greatest. Um, uh, uh, the greatest film score ever written. So, uh, not not sorry. It's the greatest composed song for a film that's ever been written. Oh, uh, that song. Oh yeah. Oh my yeah. goodness. So, um, not only was it incredible to see its original use, I think I want to put that out there first. <laughs> but I was just, com- like, in awe of how I recognized the song. Um, and also its implementation with the, the movie itself. So and, the how so- it ch- and how it changes your mindset of, of what the song is because, and in the same way that the theme song does too, where you've heard that, that very classic riff, you know, the, I, 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 yeah, you know, and, but, but when it's implemented in the movie and when you hear it, you know, in the movie, it co- totally, um, revises anything that you've ever thought um b- before you know he- hearing and seeing it implemented so. i could not agree with you more like to like you know the song and it's obnoxious but to see it with the opening of this film is just 
you're like, I'm in. I don't know what it is, but it yeah. just it blows you away. It's it's very surprising. So Ecstasy of Gold, most of you have probably heard this in a Modelo commercial, actually. Um, and I, I or like was, an Audi commercial, yeah, or like I, the opener for Metallica. They do it all, all the, like every concert. So. My, my context was a Modelo commercial, right? And so I'm sitting there like, why is the Modelo commercial music playing right now? <laughs> and then it clicked for me like, no, wait, this is what all these ads have been chasing, you know? Yeah. And it, it like, it's my mind was just blown there for a second because I'm like, this is the climax of the film. The reason I want to get into plot, Cameron, even if it's oversimplified, because there's so much to dig in with this movie, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it essentially follows three uh, gunslinger. I'm, you know, for lack of a better term, but like they're like kind of these untouchable legends, right? Um, and they are kind of they fall upon some information where they're questing to find this, you know, pot of gold that's buried in a grave. And some of them have some of the information. So they're forced to work with each other and they're all bluffing and doing different things throughout. And they're on this journey, you know, the good, the bad, the ugly, like the, those are basically the three main guys journeying across the land to find this pot of gold and, and being very competitive, but also having to work together in, in different scenarios. They go from hating each other to, you know, uh, collaborating to back to like pulling guns on each other. So it's a very fun dynamic. And all three of the characters are just a joy to watch on screen. That was the other thing I I was, I was very positive that I only wanted to see Clint Eastwood watching this movie, but I was wrong. Like snake eyes and, uh, Tuco are just fantastic. Like you want to see more and more of them. The whole scene with like Tuco picking out the gun is just, is great. It's yeah. so good. Yeah. Um, so they're all le- they're all legendary watching them um, operate. And I really want to dive into the characters, but that's kind of the overview. If you're not bought in, just go watch it, man. Like, <laughs> go watch it. Um, yeah, I like what you're saying, Cameron, about the cultural significance of this film, even beyond its score. Like, the moments that you know are going to happen, happen in a way that you don't really expect you know and i think like this film subverts its like subverted my expectation because you think of this movie and in my mind i'm like this is the western like period you know this is the western but it's actually very not the western you know like that's what was so weird watching it and that made me buy into it even more because I was like, I'm gonna watch another cowboy movie, and instead I get this wild, creative like thing with sort of a, I, I just can't get away from that word. Le- like it's a legend. It is like a legend movie. You know, it's super stylized. There's so many scenes worth watching, even if it is too long. And I do want to get into some of the weird stuff that's included in this movie because there's some strange subplots in there. But um, yeah, I, I don't know, Cameron. I want you to kind of riff off what I'm going on right now. Yeah, no, I think, I think like the fact that that I don't know, I I find it really interesting that you're you're sort of saying it's the Western because I would say it is going from 1966. Like every Western after this has kind of been chasing this, uh, not not style necessarily, not um feel it but i think i think just it all 
forms has been trying to recapture the magic that um, that happened in this movie. And I think every every Western from here on out. Um, and unfortunately, we're only going to be able to watch one modern Western uh, next, you know, this next week. But, um, you know, I would love to to take you through a couple of the the more modern Westerns that really do um, extract things from from this movie. Um, it's it's kind of fascinating that um, a movie like this is so ingrained in our our subconscious like i don't know the first time i watched this um i was in high school and i was shocked at how much about this movie i knew without knowing i knew it you know like i was i was genuinely taken aback that like there were there were scenes in this movie that i had seen and i had never seen this movie you know what i mean like like the the final mexican standoff i was like wait is that is that where this is from? Like, is yeah. that is that actually like from here? And the answer is yes. Like, it's from it's from this movie, and, and in a way that is so unlike any other movie. Actually, um, you know, we've seen so many movies that are that are influences for other movies, and we talk about that kind of briefly on the show. We'll we'll be like, oh, you know, the the Great Train Robbery. There's that last shot where you know he turns the camera, and you know that influences. Goodfellas, you know, so like we, yeah. we mentioned that every now and then, but I think this movie is the best example of, um, of that, of that, that sort of mindset of, I think everybody, every filmmaker from after this point is trying to be Sergio Leone <laughs> in a lot of ways, maybe not directly from, from his style, but I think I think, like you said, the sort of coolness, the the legendary element of his movies, like he he brought something to the table that was um, that was never there before, that didn't exist before, in at at very least the American film scene. Um, and after this, I think you will see a clear shift in the filmmakers' mindsets of where things are going to go next. And I think we've actually already seen it. You know, when we talked about Scorsese, like he's a really important figure in the, um, in the pushing of cinema to sort of reflect these maybe more, um, I don't know, reflect more international ideas, reflect more sort of, uh, you know, taking influences from that, uh, that aren't just like classic American Hollywood cinema. Um, and I think, I think Leone is like, obviously a clear example for, for Scorsese. So, um, you know, I think, I think this movie in particular is very, very important in that it, 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 you can see the influence that it's had. You know, if you've watched any movie, literally, I think any almost any movie, um, if you've seen, you know, anything from Scorsese, if you've seen anything from Tarantino, if you've seen anything from sort of the, the big name working directors right now, they are inspired by the good, the bad and the ugly and Leone in general. So I found that this movie had something that I don't expect to find in old movies and I'm always excited to see in old movies. And that's sort of like 
the big reveal, right? When we watch The Apartment uh, and even Witness for the Prosecution, um, those movies are leading up to one great big reveal that is edge of your seat exciting, right? Um, and even a lot of these Westerns, I think, have a pretty linear uh like destination or objective in them and you're waiting for it to come forward, right? I think what's so off-putting but engaging in this in this film is that so many of the scenes are working around small reveals that are like it like have you on the edge of your seat ready to like see what happens next. And that's just for me, like as a, as a lazy modern, like movie watcher, right. That sort of experience in an old movie like this, like had me just thrilled to watch all three hours of it, which most old movies I'm like, okay, like I can't do this. Right. But like for someone that kind of has ADHD, the, the opening scene, right. It's a lingering forever on these three figures riding horses towards one doorway. Right. Um, and one's you're trying to figure out what's going on. Like one's coming from one direction and two are coming from another direction. And they're coming towards each other and you don't know where they're going. And then, oh, they actually know each other. Oh, they're actually going to that door. What's in the door? What are they? Oh, they pull out their guns. Wait, what's about to happen? You know, they barge in and then a guy smashes through the window who you've never seen. And it's like, oh, that's the ugly. And like, boom, in your face. Like, that's the reveal. You know what yeah, I mean? Like yeah, that. Yeah. And, and you're like, okay, right? And then... Um, it's just like, everything is like this tension and release tension and release in this movie. Um, mm. and it's all like, it's all moving up to that final like pot of gold as well. And even when you're there, you have no idea like what's going to happen. It's tension and release. Like, okay, they're digging and then, you know, Blondie shows up or, or Turo, uh, um, Tuco's digging. Right. And Blondie shows up behind him. What's going to happen? you know, release. He hands the shovel, right? There's those who dig and those who have the gun or whatever. Well, he okay. says that after he says that later, but yeah. Yeah. You know, and they, um, so now like, okay, but then where's, where's, um, where's, uh, angel eyes. Right. And so you're, there's always like this tension and release, like you're slowly things are revealed, but then like the tension keeps going up and up to that, the Mexican standoff where you're like, I was like, like verbally laughing. I was like, what, is gonna happen like i just i need to know like and it takes forever too it's like edging you right there you know it's just it's impressive it's exciting and like i i 100 agree with you cameron like this is one of those films like you just need to see it once even if you hate it even if you hate it and i know why you'd hate it because there are these again like when i was saying it thinks it's cool like it does and that can come off negative in some situations like there's this entire subplot about the civil war and like war commentary i'm like what is this like we they spend like 20 minutes on it and i'm confused about that we can dig into that but yeah i think like the tension and release that was like the most modern feeling aspect of it that kept it engaging on top of the crazy style and the legend factor and all that like i was just it's one of those movies that I'm like, boy, I'm really glad I checked that off the list. And it's mm. fun to tell people that I've seen it too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's one that you can say like, oh, you haven't seen it. Like you should, you should see it. You know, it's like, it's well worth it. Um, yeah. I think, I think anybody can pick something up. Well, we'll get into it later, I guess. But um, I do want to talk a little bit about the characters because they're very yes. important in 
the fact that they don't follow the traditional sort of way that we've seen Westerns address good and bad. Um, and, you know, I do want to say, first off, I think a lot of people are really cavalier when they talk about Westerns being sort of simplistic, um, you know, Westerns from John Ford, the early period of Westerns being simplistic, you know, they just deal with the good and the bad and, you know, whatever. I think that's not true. I think that's a load of nonsense. Um, yeah. I think we've seen that the <laughs> at least, you know, some of the Westerns that we've seen um, have a lot of complexity to the characters, a lot mm. of interesting commentary about what makes someone good what makes someone responsible what makes someone moral um you know is there a difference between being responsible and being moral you know and so like there's 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 totally complexity in the, in those movies like i'm sure there are examples that we can point to of you know them taking a simple good versus bad but i really don't think that's ever been the case um i think you know I would challenge anybody to come up with with sort of a mainstream example of that kind of simplistic um, motif. I really don't think that's very true at all. Um, even Stagecoach, which I think is maybe our most simplistic Westerns that, that we've watched, um, even that has a lot of intrigue in some of the characters, like the the drunken, um, you know, doctor and whatnot. So uh, I, I really, I reject the idea whole, wholesale that um, the Western genre has this track record of being, you know, just good versus bad and, you know, whatever. No, I don't, I don't think that's true. But to give that thought some credit, I guess, is the there's definitely the case that this takes a much more nuanced idea of and a much more nuanced perspective on the idea of the good, the bad, and the ugly, or the idea of what makes you a good person. Um, yeah. Because Blondie, I think, unequivocally is not a very good person. Um, and, you know, he, I think purposefully he's shown killing the most people um he's shown sort of uh doing very devious things um yeah he's like very, a scammer you know? yeah yeah he is um and being very kind of um uh very selfish first of all which i think is is a um it's a theme in all of leone's uh movies especially the dollars trilogies um and being very sort of um, uh, sly, I guess. Um, yeah, he's charming for sure. Uh, he, but in a way that, um, like he's not. You can see why he's not bad. You know what I mean? Like, right. you, can, you can see why he's not the bad guy. And in fact, he does have his his own moral system or his own sort of moral code. You know, you see that when he. Um, you know, he gives a puff of his, of his cigar to the, um, you know, to the dying soldier yeah. and, you know, and, and one of the things that he's, uh, that I think, uh, Blondie displays more than anything is sort of respect and honor. Mm. Um, and I would say that those are the things that make him quote unquote, the good, yeah. um, the bad, uh, angel eyes. I think he uh I think Leone sees him as more than anything dishonorable. Um he's, you know, 
of course he's a hired hand so you know he's going to he's going to kill anybody who you know who he can get to in sort of the same way that um that that blondie is i guess he he's blondie is after money he's after his own his own sort of um fulfillment in life but but angel eyes i think has no loyalty which is what makes him um the bad uh and I don't know. I think I think he's a really fun character. So obviously, I think Angel Eyes being the bad, I think it comes down to his um disloyalty and um and maybe just ruthlessness. Um he enjoys sort of he's kind of a sadist. Um it's similar to uh in in for a fistful of dollars or for a few dollars more actually. There's a there's a character who um who he he kind of just enjoys uh killing and and being destructive and i think angel eyes is a little bit less he's much more he's he's i get i mean they're kind of similar characters actually but um in any case he has this sort of um you know anybody's anybody's willing to he's willing to kill anybody he's he has no loyalty to to anything no loyalty to any cause you know at one point he joins the union army um not really for any particular reason other than he can torture people <laughs> and so and and make money off of them so um you know he he kind of has no um you know no nothing nothing beholden to him and the ugly i think he's not considered worse than than anyone else um i think he's considered sort of the um the most pure uh uh id of them all i guess he's 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 the most um driven by his his sort of pure selfishness um and pure intuition um and i think that's kind of what makes him the ugly is he's he's Again, disloyal, but in a way that he's he's just only, um, you know, he will he will completely flip flop back and forth, um, and and has no sort of nothing nothing that will um, that will tie him down. He just wants sort of things for himself. So, I well, I, th- I think Angel is similar to to that, but. I, it's it's a little bit different and he's not as he's not as directly ruthless um so there are some elements about your interpretation that I do agree with but I also believe that the characters sort of define themselves by a- action and also like just direct quotes um so blondie is actually the hardest for me to pin down and the best way I can kind of say it is he's like um because all of them come down to justifying their judgment in, in every action, right? And Blondie's response to any situation where he has to commit judgment in some way um, is he doesn't want to, to commit it. He says, I'm not going to save you, but I'm not going to kill you either, right? That happens mm-hmm. pretty early on where he's like, I'm not, I'm not going to choose to judge you. I'm just going to leave, right? And that's his decision um, in a lot of different moments in the film. And he has fun with that because he's almost not, he's not burdening 
um, the consequence of his judgment because he's trying to disassociate and unengage in sort of a playful manner in, in some ways, right? Um, now, Tur- uh, Tuco actually lays out pretty early in the film that his judgment um, is fueled by revenge, right? And he says, like, what you do to me, or he, he's always saying, like, if you double cross me, I'm coming back to get you, right? Yeah. His thing is an eye for an eye, right? Like that's all his judgment comes down to. And if, and if and if he can find some sort of justification to unleash his wrath on you um, because you harmed him, like he will do it, right? Where he kind of runs into a hiccup is when he's enacting his revenge on Blondie. And then there's a conflict of interest because the judgment he's finishing on killing him out in the desert uh, is is suddenly pulled away when he is greedy and decides he wants the money, but he's still like he's still like I'm going to finish this guy off because you know um, I just need to use him for a little bit longer and then I'll I'll continue in 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 my um, in in my form of judgment. Right. I think what's interesting is that these like early established um, ideas for judgment are then challenged as the as the story continues. Right. Uh, Angel Eyes establishes his morality or his his reasoning for judgment super early on, and it is like driven by a kind of a chaos factor. But he said he lays out he has his own moral standard. He's like, I if I'm paid for a job, I finish it. That's basically like he's like quintessentially greed is yeah. usually what yeah. it is, right? Where he's like, I will do anything uh, as long as there's a check attached to it, right? And so, like, he continues to commit to that, and his only reservation in that is, again, this situation of information where his judgment can't, like, come full full circle because he's like, well, I know that I need to, you know, destroy anything in my way to get, you know, to finish the job, right? To get paid for it. But at the same time, he needs, you know... Uh, Blondie to figure out where the grave is, right? Like they're they're all like they all start the movie with a clear like moral standard in a way, you know. I think all of them are like like you know uh, Tuco's like eye for an eye, Angel Eyes is like I'll do it, uh, I'll finish the job if I'm paid, right? And then Clint Eastwood is like I don't know, <laughs> you know, like that's kind of like where they all start. And the journey challenges them in each one of their like perspectives, and I just found it really I interesting. Think, I think everybody has this the same <laughs> single minded uh, obsession with with sort of their own um, their own fulfillment, right? Like every each of the characters is is self interested at the very least. Yes. Um, which is another interesting thing about this, you know, like in comparison to something like, um, uh, something like like the Searchers, I I think, you know, you have you have a uh, the duality of John Ford's character who, um, you know, is not necessarily motivated by his own greed. He's actually motivated by revenge, right? And and he's kind of the the most immoral character, I guess. Um, and then you have the, uh, but, but then at the same time you have the sort of 
what is it? The ne- the nephew or um, the the younger character who's, yeah, yeah, who's yeah. with him, who's also similarly um, sort of motivated by revenge, but sort of motivated by wanting to save someone. So more more than more just noble, um, uh, you know, motivations. But in in this movie, I think. There no, there's no one who has noble motivations necessarily. Um, nobody is looked at as having sort of having anything to do with, with you know, I'm standing up for what's right. You know, they're they're standing up for themselves. Um, and and that's a that's another feature I would say of the spaghetti western is it's a, maybe a little bit more realistic i guess i i do think some people have noble motivations in life but at the same time i think everybody is self-interested and i think that is true um and spaghetti westerns often that's 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 everyone's motivation whether you're a good guy whether you're a bad bad guy you're self-interested um yeah and, and that's just that's just a blank slate of you know of humanity but there's a realism with that too, mm-hmm. right? And I think that's why when you see um, Tuco's reaction to like getting to the gold, right? He has like his response in being that close to what he thinks is self-fulfilling, right? Is is followed by that great score, but it's like just and insanity like he is just like oh my goodness like i just need this i'm so close you know um whereas blondie like keeps his cool and honestly like so does angel eyes is just like trying to take it all in you know um clint eastwood's character definitely has this like character trait where he knows more than the audience and so in a way you kind of connect with Tuco because you're trying to figure it out and you don't want to put your shoes in with like, you know, angel eyes cause you don't like him. So like Tuco, when you're saying like, is he's the it or whatever. Right. Um, he's strangely like, like I, I was so enamored by all three of them that at times, obviously I didn't think angel eyes was the main character, but I didn't know who I was supposed to be rooting for or following. Right. Mm. Um, between Tuco and, and Blondie, right? Because they they both have their moments. So, yeah, they, I love that all three of these characters are awesome and their names are in the title of the movie, so they should be awesome. But I've seen <laughs> yeah. a lot of movies where, like, they're kind of kicked to the side, but I like I like all three of them. They're great. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, yeah, no, I think I think you're you're definitely right. Um in your interpretation. I think there's so much complexity to, to these characters. No, I agree. We've only touched the surface. So yeah. And I think we only, unfortunately we only will touch the surface because this movie has, has so many layers that we can just pull, pull back and pull back. And even, you know, you were mentioning the, the subplot with the, you know, with the civil war, which I do, I personally, and I think you probably agree I think it's the weakest part of the movie, although yeah. it has its elements that are really compelling. I think the scene where Tuco is being um, tortured 
and the you know the band is playing outside is is really really spectacular i think it's yeah. um maybe one of the best scenes in the movie just just for the fact that it it's again this use of um musicality in the you know in the environment musicality in the way that the movie is um is you know, is, is explaining things to you. And then at the same time, there's, there's a duality because there's something very beautiful and very, um, peaceful playing at the same time, you're seeing something so brutal. Um, and I think that that really evokes something, you know, in, in the audience that is instantly sort of locks you in. Um, I also really like the scene where, um, just because it's a fun, uh, Blondie and Tuco scene, but um, there's not really like a ton to it. But uh, uh, the the scene where they're they sort of figure out that they need to blow up the bridge, um, yes, and they go and blow up the bridge. I love that scene because it's just it's just fun. Like there, it it feels like you know this sort of buddy cop style, and you know they're they're totally obviously they're they're working together at this moment in the film, and you you know probably forty five minutes earlier just saw them like blondie on the brink of death tuco trying to to like torture him to death and like right you know so like yeah. it's it's interesting that there's like phases to this movie where one's against another and then they're both against the you know they're both against angel eyes and then angel eyes and blondie are together and then you know <laughs> blondie and tuco are back together you know what i mean so right there's, there's like these phases of the movie but i really enjoy um that sequence in the end where they're blowing up the 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 bridge i think it's not only is it just fun um i think it's it's pretty it's pretty compelling and the captain character is really interesting as well yeah um but for the most part, the other stuff, I could say we could leave it. It's not really that important to the, um, you know, to the main thrust of the story. And it, it kind of adds a little bit of bulk that isn't necessary. Um, you know, it's uh, like I said, it's it's probably the weakest part of the movie. But um, yeah, it's that. So I agreed with you that the the war commentary stuff seems very forced in almost like as a personal creative note and i don't know much about the director right but it seemed like he really wanted to comment on certain aspects of military combat and and things like that um and so i was like this kind of feels tacked on but when they introduced the drunken general there was something about that entire battle sequence and everything that i was almost okay with it and i don't and I feel like it could have been cut out, um, but that part actually kind of sticks with me a lot, and I and yeah. I can't really explain why. It's just, um, I, it has a lot to say about, you know, sort of like war, and it, there's a, a ton of like just dark sarcasm and bitterness in in that mm-hmm. scene about mm-hmm. what war does to people. And it has some of the most interesting camera work in the film as well. Um, yeah. There is that great moment where all the cannons are firing and they just keep zooming in on the cannon shooting. I'm like, that is just awesome. Like, what a great, like, use of the zoom. And they overdo it so you really pay attention, right? 
Um, and then, you know, there's also that fantastic cannon scene where they're getting close to the gold where he like lights the cannon with his uh, cigar, cigar as well. Yeah. That scene, I was like, awesome. I stood up. I stood up. I'm like, no, like this is just <laughs> great, you know? Yeah. Um, so there's a lot of stuff in, in, in that like bunk. And also like um, Tuco and Blondie's presence is just completely obscure that they're there. They're like the only guys that are not in uniform. They stand out really weirdly. And yeah, they're basically observers, which is fine too, because yeah. the, the part of the, the kind of the point of the scene is that everybody gets dragged in first of all, and yeah. everybody gets, um, gets bruised up from, from this sort of situation. And also I think there's, there's something about the fact that he, you know, they go from Confederates to Union soldiers. Um, yeah. That says something a little bit about about the perspective of um, the Civil War as well. Is pretty ambiguous in terms of, in the same way that our main character, who is supposed to be the good, is not all that good. You know, the Union side is not all that good either um, and the Confederate side not all that good. So, so there's no, you know, I think Part of it is that there's no good, good actors in war. And that I think comes from the experience of World War Two and sort of the impact that that had on Italy. Um, and I would say there's there's a lot of commentary in terms of the Civil War. You know, he's relating the Civil War to World War Two as well. Um, right. And and so, you know, I think. I think there's there's certain complexity there um, that I think is pretty interesting, but um, yeah, I mean, I think I think for the most part, I could cut off the first like maybe twenty minutes or so of of that sequence and be okay with the movie. Like, I don't think it needs it all that much. Um, yeah, and it would probably be better if it was a little truncated in that sequence but i think almost everything else deserves its place in the movie even as as sort of drawn out as a lot of these sequences are you know like obviously they're drawn out and obviously that's on purpose you know what i mean like they make it very clear and so like it it on because i was getting frustrated at certain points but then they just kept going and i was like it like came full circle where I was like, okay, I get like, I get it. You're just overdoing it at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the, the point is that it's supposed to, um, make you, it's supposed to be tense. You know, a lot of this movie is supposed to have that sort of, wait, what? Yeah. Oh, wait, really? Really? Oh, you know, like there's this, there's this phase of being going through sort of the emotions of, of waiting for something and waiting for something and waiting for something and then getting that relief, you know, it's, and it's, it's that there's, there's sort of this, um, it's almost elaborate how, uh, how, how just, you know, how the, the moments of this film, um, extend and extend and extend. And you, you get the sense that it's obviously done, um, for the purpose of making you sort of making you drag out. And I would say in the same way that the characters have this sense of, of wanting something so bad and not getting it and not getting it and not getting it and getting it delayed and sort of having this delayed gratification. And then 
at the final moment, you and the characters get this sense of of relief um, with this amazing, beautiful score. Um, you know, the final song is just is just killer. It's so good. Every I think all the all of the songs in this movie are really good, but the the last two, Ecstasy of Gold and and the trio, I think are just I mean, they're spectacular. They're so so good. Um, I did want to talk a little bit before we wrap up because I know I think we're probably going a little bit over, but that's okay. It's a long movie. Um, I did want to talk a little bit about sort of what you thought about that scene that I showed you um, from Fistful of Dollars and sort of the rest of the the musical, um, you know, sort of the musical sense of these movies because I, I think it's a really important part of of this world in this um environment well <clears throat> that the, like to me that scene that i watched at the end of that film was a good introduction to who clint eastwood was like becoming at a young age right and also it introduced me to leone's like obviously like the the tension and reveal moment mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. uh and the way it just continued to linger um and and sort of the benefits of drawing out a scene i was like okay like that was worth it being drawn out and it was exciting to watch and so now i know what to kind of expect for the next thing i didn't really connect blondie with that character too much besides the fact that it was clint eastwood and he's a total stud in these movies, man. Like, yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> real, like really cool. Like I was like, dang man. Like he's just got this persona that is not, it's not John Wayne. It's like, it's his own thing. And it's really, it's really cool. Um, but yeah, that just to see that scene, it felt iconic and I was glad I watched the last 10 minutes, but, um, yeah, I was like, okay, I'm ready to jump in to good, the bad, the ugly. I didn't, I didn't pull away anything too much about like the music and all that, but um, I liked how brutal it was too. Like the the ending where he just like, you know, draws and guns down a bunch of people, and then he like finishes them off and the shotgun from the window, all that stuff. It just seems like very much western. Um, a lot of the clothing design on Clint Eastwood's character, um, especially in the final standoff of the good, the bad, the ugly. And of course, like the poncho at the ending of the, what is it? Fistful of dollars, right? Mm -hmm. Um, like that has impacted every single fictional cowboy character that I've seen immensely. Like yeah. just, I, I, I like the, the first thing I thought of, and seeing him with the poncho at the end of um, uh, The Good, The Bad, The Ugly is there's this game I play called Overwatch and the quintessential cowboy character. Like, they just have a bunch of crazy characters in that game. One of them's a cowboy who's named McCree. Like, copy-paste that outfit. Like, legit, everything about him <laughs> is just Clint Eastwood, right? And I'm like, sure. wow. Like, I didn't realize how how important, like, his attire and look and style is to like sort of that that kind of cowboy it's not the same cowboy as clint e or it's not the same cowboy as john wayne um but it is a legendary look and even the the sort of you know you have that close-up and and he he reveals his face from yep. his hat like yep. that's so iconic and there's 
there's so many movies that that continue to do that to this day that it you know there's there's something about that look when you see it where you're like oh man like that's so cool like you know what i mean yeah like, dude indiana jones 3 where he gets punched in the rain and then yeah yeah looks up. no i mean there's so much there's so much that's been inspired from the i think even just the hat from indiana jones yeah. is kind of a callback to you know to to this this sort of classic you know uh the, this classic you know hat wearing macho man who's kind of who's kind of suave who's kind of uh awesome and i don't know i think i think it's totally totally influenced from these movies yeah um i i i can't really gush too much more about this movie because it's uh, in in some ways i think it's so um it's so wonderful and brilliant, but it, in a way that is in incapturable. Um, and I guess what I mean by that is I think it's so it's 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 like right place at the right time. Yeah. You know, there's no way that you could remake this movie. There's no way that you could capture the same sort of magic um, that that Leone captured. And in some ways it makes me kind of sad, but in other ways it doesn't because you can always go back to this movie and watch it and get things from it and sort of re-experience the, the feeling. I actually think all three of these movies you could go back to at any point, put on and, and be just in enraptured with how, um, how evocative they are of of sort of the essence of the spaghetti western um and i think that's why they're important to this day i think that's why they're clearly clearly something was captured in you know in this time in these three movies four movies and it'll never happen again but i'm kind of glad that we have these as examples of of what can what can be done with with film what can be done with especially just a genre um i don't know it's it's i almost feel like this this like melancholy watching these movies um because they're so they're so important to me personally as as a as a filmmaker and as someone who who loves film um but they're also they're also just they'll never be done again you know like they'll <laughs> you know what I, I guess mean? like yeah i don't i don't know if i have like the same level of respect and nostalgia because i'm on my first viewing you know what i really pulled away from this was that people need to see this movie like it is timeless and i think that's where you're feeling like kind of mixed emotions about it because you're like nothing like it is going to come about again but it also stands on its own and i don't know a lot of old movies that i have to or that i can recommend that i like don't have to make some excuses for you know mm. and this movie feels like it doesn't need my excuses it the movie thinks it's cool enough you know and that's <laughs> that's pretty that's that's pretty ballsy and i'm glad that it is as awesome as it is you know Again, not a flawless movie, but required viewing for sure. Like, you got to see it. You got to see it once, you know? And 
my goodness, listen to that soundtrack. If you don't want to watch it all again and you've seen it before, just listen to Ecstasy of Gold one more time and you'll be like, whoa, that is great. Even the the last track too, Cameron, that you're mentioning is really good. So, I would say uh, all of the music from the these three music or from these three movies are um, incredible. Ennio Morricone is is just he just has this classic, amazing feel to him and i think you know obviously he inspired quentin tarantino and i think there's something to that where we as sort of modern viewers identify with any morcone music because he's continued to innovate and continued to be in these newer movies um but at the same time it's just it's it's brilliant you know like there's there's that also is what makes me sad, probably, because he passed away um, a couple of years ago and maybe last year, actually. He, he, I think he passed away last year. And um, he's someone who I consider to be basically the top of his craft. I don't think anybody anybody will ever capture the magic that he did. So um, Just, uh, you know, bring back the electric guitar, you know. You can get some... Like, there's so much like electric guitar in his stuff that I'm I'm proud. I'm proud to say that I love it. Of course. It's awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, get that nice telly bite. You and know? yelling and harmonica and it's just so cool. And compared to the Westerns that we we watched already, you know, where there's the, sort of these sweeping um, violin classical scores almost, which yeah. you probably don't even remember because they're not that <laughs> notable or memorable. Right. But this, this is what sort of turned... I think the music and the style and the aesthetic of this movie is what turned the genre into something completely different. And it it's what we remember uh, from the Western genre. It's, it's like that awesome pairing in a music video where they have the video that just is inseparable from the music mm. once you see it. Yeah. yeah this yeah. is almost like inverted where it's like the score and the imagery is just paired perfectly and i love when movies mix soundtracks and images together i think what is sad is that this like this magic has been replaced when it comes to orchestration instead now we have guardians of the galaxy revisiting old nostalgic tracks but there's no like i'm gonna score this movie and make like I'm going to make the sound, make the image pop even more. It's not even like, cause, cause there's like this, this side of scoring where it was like an ambient feeling that just overwhelms you. I mean, I consider like Hans Zimmer being the king of ambient scoring, yeah. um, that it, it, it amplifies, it, it like amplifies the intensity and the buy-in to a scene, but it's not like a, it's not a pairing. It's more of like a, um, like an icing on the cake. Or the foundation. It's like, oh, just that last touch. You know, Hans Zimmer's great. Yeah. It's that touch. You're like, oh, I love it. Where this score is like, I'm not just going to put in sound. I'm going to make every sound like come to li- like, like bring the image out and come to life. Right. What's what's interesting about listening to like just the opening song is there's a lot of dry space in the orchestration. Yeah, And it's because the song changes its sound with the images, right? 
it was like you're saying at the beginning, right? When you watch it with the song that you have like a preconceived concept of, it has a new life because that emptiness, like you think of like the guitar that goes bow down, 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 right? You listen to it on Spotify and the guitar is dry, right? It's kind of like sharp and, and intense and kind of like, okay, yeah, that's the score. I remember that part. But then when you see it on screen, it's like down, 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 down. Like everything on the image is also playing off that at the same time where it, it just, there's no sound added. It's just even more than that. It's like overstimulation of, mm. of your ears and eyes. And it's, it's um, you gotta, you gotta see it. You gotta see it at least. One. Even if you hate it, you gotta see it. Like that's how I feel about it. And it's rare for a movie to succeed in that um in that pairing of, of music and, and picture as well. Like I, that is like, you're going to win it in my book. So I'm a little bit biased. If you can pull that kind of stuff off, I'm like, I'll watch three hours. I won't even complain. <laughs> I'll even get up and scream at certain parts of it. So I'm kind of yeah. shocked. Actually. I thought you were going to be like, uh, the movie's boring. It's long. I didn't like it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm super happy. First of all, that you loved it, but um, I, I'm a, a little bit surprised because it is long and it can be arduous at sometimes. I understand that. Listen, like I'm, I, you know, I, I appreciate that. I think this movie won you over just in the fact that it's so stylish and so wonderful and fun to watch, you know? Yeah. I think like if you're going to be bored for three hours, you might as well try to make it as overstimulating and stylized as possible. And he did. So I'm like, I, I can't knock it, you know, like that's what I was saying. Like the movie thinks it's so cool. And I'm like, I'm not going to knock you for at least hitting a home run with that, you know, and like, it, and it is so cool. I mean, yeah, it is. <laughs> like it is. So yeah, no, I, I, uh, yeah, I'm glad, I'm glad you liked it. I think I agree. It's totally a movie that is necessary viewing, um, regardless of if you actually end up liking it or not uh it it's just it's just one that i think if you miss if you miss out on you're missing out on something that's so important and sort of vital to um to film language uh it's yeah. something that has when it, at its time it completely disrupted the the how film works and then to this day it's been it's been integral in the way that people view and think about films. So, um, I, you know, I, I, and the, and the other thing I think about when recommending this film is that it is so consumable in, in like, how do I say this? Like a lot of famous artistic movies, sometimes they require a buy-in, right? Uh, you either let go of your expectations. So they're subverted or, you know, you you experience the movie and you really have to follow the story. You know, you really got to sink your teeth into the mechanics of how the film's made. Well, why you got to be interested in these little bits. I feel like this movie can be appreciated at the highest level and enjoyed at the lowest level, too. Uh, totally. And, and totally. that's like, that is what that is what I'm like. That's why I'm like, it's obviously for everyone, right? It doesn't even matter if you like it or not. There's some, like... You could be cooking dinner and put this movie on and find something that you're like, that was worth having on during dinner, you know? Um, or you could sit down there and study every single frame and fall in love with it, you know? So that that alone should tell you, like, the excellence behind this film. And rewatch it again. Like, I, 
I can already see myself watching this movie a second time and, and being stunned about how much I forgot about it, yet also how familiar it is. I, I know I'm, we're kind of rambling with that, but I just, I don't know. There's something about it that I'm like, yeah, it's great. And if you like The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, you should watch the other two Dollars trilogy. I think all three of them have their um, positives and... All three of them do have their negatives, obviously, but I think I think they're all worth watching. They all have influenced something. And I think even just the fact that, you know, Fistful of Dollars is like 90 minutes. It's totally, totally an easy movie to watch um, uh, uh, for a few dollars more is like two hours. Not not as so they're not as much of a buy in as uh, as the good, the bad and the ugly at three hours. But totally worth watching. They're free on Amazon prime too. So that's another plus. Uh, they're just, they're just spectacular movies, great score, great characters, fun all around. Um, yeah, I think, I think genuinely if you enjoy this movie and also it works out that in the sort of canon of things, it's technically a prequel. It's not really. It's 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 all a bunch of hooey. Um, the story behind that is United Artists wanted to bring all three of these movies over to America, and in order to do that, they sold them as a trilogy. Um, but they were never really intended to be a trilogy, other than the fact that he wears basically the same clothes throughout all three movies. Oh, and we didn't even talk about how it's like overdubbed. Oh well. yeah. Well, that's that's another thing that I was going to ask you about. Was did that at all bother you? Because um, I know that that could be a sticking point for some people, but for me, I think that not really. It, it didn't bother me, but that's where I kind of began to like link that Hideo Kojima example and like sort of the anime comparison. Mm, yeah. Um, which I was like, this feels wrong. Wrong. Why I'm thinking about these things, but for some reason there's some familiarity in that. I think it has to do with it being um, more more of a uh, like for it's it's technically out of the states it's it's foreign cinema in a way um so it didn't it didn't it didn't bother me honestly um it's just interesting now because like there's certain like chinese directors coming forward and and releasing movies and there's not overdubs and whatnot so i think some of it had to come with you know with time and 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 things like that but well what's funny about um these movies specifically is that they were um in Italy, they didn't really have good soundproofing in their studios, and especially, obviously, they didn't have good sound uh, when they were shooting on location. So they overdubbed every single movie. And it wasn't just these movies that were supposed to be in English. Um, they just overdubbed everything. And a lot of this movie was shot in Spain, and so the extras were Spanish or Italian. So they all just spoke their native language. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, you can notice that some of them are speak like some of them speak English, and some of them don't. And that was kind of confusing, but yeah, um, yeah. Which is, I mean, it's part of again, sort of the charm, and it's one of the things that is notable about these movies is is people know that these are overdubbed, and um, there's kind of that that aesthetic to it as well. So, um, also, but it like even adds more to your like earliest example that I keep bringing up of it being feeling like a legend, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's like someone is telling the story through people who are talking, they're overdubbed, you know, it's, it's cool. It's, it, it, 
it, it is special. It's some like it wasn't a blocker for me by any means. So that's good. I because yeah. I thought I thought for sure that that was going to be something that you complained about, but I'm glad that it it wasn't. <laughs> Sometimes, like if the feeling is right, like yeah. I just start excusing things. So <laughs> I I I can um I can probably guarantee that someone could watch this movie and just be absolutely hatred toward like great hatred towards it. But I really feel like the style will try to win you over, uh, in in many ways. Um, and, and it's one of the very few movies that, um, thinks that it's cool and actually achieves it, yep, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, for the most part, when, when a movie thinks that it's cool, it's always not, uh, and it always doesn't work. Um, but this movie somehow wins you over and is actually just very cool. <laughs> like yeah. regardless, yeah, I, you know, like you said, like I love the sequence where he lights the the cannon with his cigarette. Like, oh, I love the weapon. Awesome. I love the weapons in this movie. Yeah, like, they're very, very iconic. The e- different e- revolvers and the and the the rifle, like the I don't know, like the buffalo the w- rifle. That yeah, he, like, shoots. yeah. Well, I was gonna say even the the whole subplot of him and and Tuco. Um, trying to get rewards by hanging him multiple times is like awesome it's so cool i don't know what about it if that's one of the things that i that i think about all the time uh it's like one of the things that has stuck with me about this movie is just like oh man remember that movie where you know he shoots the the middle of the rope so that he can get his friend out of hanging like that's awesome and that is another thing that comes up in so many westerns nowadays like yeah um so yeah i don't know we could gush about this movie for another two hours but i think i think we should call it because um you know what what's more to say other than go watch it it's forever watch it it's for everyone um shot of the film for me was the canon stuff but there's a ton of great things in this movie so I, that's just the one that's on the top of my head right now but the canon thing did stick with me yeah there's so much uh amazing iconography in this movie for me i think probably just how iconic it is the last uh the last fight oh, scene every so good. every shot in that is just like just incredible like they, i don't know what it is but um Every time I watch it, I'm just hooked. I'm hooked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For every no. shot. Um, although totally. I will say, I think my favorite shot of all of three, the three of the movies comes from the very opening of A Fistful of Dollars, where he rides in, uh, he rides into town and it, it centers on a noose hanging um, and then it lowers and reveals Clint Eastwood, and it's just awesome. It's super mm. cool. Mm. Um, but you know, that's not this movie. So yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, we post every Monday. Um, this one's just a late Monday, so hopefully we'll have the next episode up early. Cameron, do you know what the next film is, or is it Patreon voted? It is Patreon voted. It's looking like the Unforgiven for now. Uh, it's also going to be our commentary. So um, great. Looking forward to it. Thank you guys for supporting the show and listening to this long episode. Uh, We appreciate you guys. You can support us again at patreon.com slash ECFS productions if you want some of those benefits. And uh, we, uh, yeah, we appreciate you. We'll see you next week. 
Cinema Spectator is an ECFS Productions podcast executive produced by Darren O'Neill. If you want your name read in the credits of the show, you can check us out at patreon.com slash ECFS Productions to achieve this status. Thank you, Darren, for the support. And for the rest of you, we appreciate your support as well. Have a good one.